everyone. This is Sandy Vartharaja, co-host of The Pulse Podcast. In this episode, I sat with Michelle Davey, co-founder and CEO of Wheel, which is healthcare's answer to the gig economy. Based in Austin, Texas, Wheel makes it simple for companies to stand up a virtual care practice under their own brand by pairing tech with a nationwide clinician network. Wheel recently closed its Series B fundraising round, bringing its total funding to $66 million, with backers including Lightspeed Ventures, CRV, and Tusk Venture Partners. Michelle's unique background in tech and healthcare recruitment operations and her personal journey experiencing inadequate access to healthcare in rural areas during her upbringing made for a really inspiring discussion. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. Thank you so much for joining us today, Michelle. Super pumped to talk to you today. Thanks, Sandy. Really excited to chat today. Let us start from the beginning. Walk us through your journey to healthcare. Specifically, I know you're from Texas and you've had some interesting and frustrating experiences early on interacting with the healthcare system. What prompted you becoming an entrepreneur in the space? Yeah, so my journey actually starts all the way back with my childhood. I grew up in Texas, actually a rural community about an hour outside of Austin. Growing up in rural communities are great for a lot of things. One of the things that's not great for is healthcare access. I was sick from a very early age with a number of different things, different symptoms and use cases. And essentially, my parents drove me to the doctor quite often. I couldn't get the answers for a really long time. So while my parents drove me an hour each way to find a new doctor. You know, oftentimes I was just at home with, hey, she's dehydrated, give her some Gatorade, or here's another pack of antibiotics. Hopefully this time it worked. You know, that becomes super frustrating, even as a child learning from a young age that the healthcare experience wasn't a good one for me. I spent over 15 years really seeking an answer to why I was so sick. And unfortunately, I went undiagnosed with an autoimmune condition for over 15 years because I didn't have access to care. The foundation of Wheels Vision is actually built upon access. You know, when we in healthcare talk about access, we think about it typically in two different ways. Geographic access, which is important. Socioeconomic access, which is also very important. But here at Wheel, we think about there's a third leg of the stool that's just as important. It's about access to the right clinician for your care needs when you need it. I believe if something like Wheel existed when I was a young child and in the middle of nowhere, that I would have shaved off years of my healthcare journey. My professional background has been in recruiting and operations. So I started my journey in healthcare, actually, at companies like Medtronic and large medical device companies. After about three years in that, I, I actually swore off healthcare. I was young. I was coming out of school. I was like, this is so slow moving. It's so broken. Like, I don't want any part of it. Um, And I found myself in tech where I cut my teeth in recruiting at Google, just a totally different pace. But it also taught me the importance of building great teams and what that can do and really connecting people to a career that drives passion and, and what that can do for a company. But after two years there, much like Many people at large tech companies, I jumped into a small startup and I was employee number eight at an on-demand delivery startup. We scaled rapidly across about 18 states at the time where we had to scale up our network of what we called runners, but you can think of these as the equivalent of drivers. Deal 
hustling at the height of the gig economy with building kind of the future of work. It was exciting. It was a new way for people to work who wanted extra income and a new way for people to find that flexibility of being their own boss. That company was acquired and I took a step back and tried to figure out what what was next for me. And that's when I found telemedicine. So in 2016, while less obvious to everybody else at the time, I thought, oh my gosh, this is the future. This can solve so much of the problems that we have. So really for me, telemedicine was where my professional and personal journeys collided. And so I started at a telemedicine company at the time, where as the head of global talent and shared services, meaning everything except engineering. <laughs> I was running at the time. And one of the things that we were trying to do was build a provider network. And as we were talking to doctors, there was nuances there. But what I started to realize, I had hired thousands of people in my life from tech and you know other industries was very much humbled by healthcare. I had to join forces very closely with our general counsel to understand the regulations across each state by each provider type. And it was incredibly difficult. And as I started to reach out to my peers in the industry, you know, the same theme arose. It was essentially that the hardest thing to scale was the clinical network and the workforce behind all of these telehealth companies. And that was a light bulb moment where myself and now my co-founder, who's my general counsel, Griffin, kind of turned to each other and said, there's got to be a different way. I love all of these different threads slowly coming together and waving the picture of wheel, including access for underserved populations from your experience being in a rural area, bringing the gig economy into healthcare, the frustrations with provider licensing and interstate regulation. So excited to dive into each of these a little bit more. But while we're talking about your background, you know, I wanted to point out that it's really rare we have a healthcare startup that isn't headquartered in New York City or San Francisco, and that too one led by a woman. So what is that experience? been like for you as a leader to lead a remote first company as a woman based in Texas? Great question. I think people thought I was a little bit crazy in 2018 to build outside of what people would then think of the hubs of technology and healthcare. Austin was not known for healthcare. Even within Texas, it's not known for healthcare. I think now we're proving them wrong. No, for me, it was always about where's the place that is best for us to grow the team. Me being from most of my adult life here in Austin, you know, I knew there was access to great talent here. There was a lot of great companies. And while maybe not the same level of press and kind of viewpoint on, on the Bay, there was also this focus on how do we build a business that is scalable, that is a healthy business, not one that just needs to ingest capital over the lifetime of the business. Austin was a place where we could put our heads down and work and not get distracted by the trends that were happening on each coast. So building in Austin was challenging at first. You couldn't look around and find healthcare executives around you. But I also think it challenged us to find talent that maybe didn't have the traditional background, just like myself, and find ways to apply that to healthcare. So my CFO and COO actually come from more of the rideshare economy. And how does that apply into healthcare? And you see that reflected into some of what we do today. And then as a woman, I think we're 
still finding our voice in healthcare. I'm excited. I've looked around the industry over the last 18 months and seen some incredible women leaders, not only just in startups, you look at CVS and some of these large incumbent players who are now have women CEOs at the helm. I'm incredibly encouraged by that. I'm excited to watch my peers across the board rise up into the challenge. Speaking of the last 18 months, would be remiss without addressing what happened with COVID and the surge of virtual care. In fact, telemedicine was probably healthcare's biggest buzzword in 2020. And a lot of our listeners may not realize that one of the biggest challenges in launching a telemedicine company is really around provider recruitment and credentialing. Really hard to build a nationwide provider network. It's expensive, it's time consuming. So can you talk through some of the challenges here, why there's such a high barrier to entry in creating a nationwide provider network, especially if you're a startup that's looking to enter the space? That is the core of what we always built upon. And as I talked about a little bit earlier, that was what we faced when trying to build this. I mean, I'll go to the fact that we already have a massive clinician shortage in this country. About 2.3 million clinicians needed over the next five years. And then you pile on that they were already pre-pandemic, just completely burned out. 50% of providers at that time were saying they were burned out. But then you pile on a global pandemic on their backs, about one in five clinicians expecting to leave healthcare post-pandemic, which is already making the gap much wider. So you can't just replicate the broken system and bring it online, which is what early telemedicine did. And so when I say the broken system, you know, you have this model in traditional healthcare where one clinician works for one hospital group or one community center and really just serves the patient population around them. And while that's great, and they have a lot of impact into that direct community, what that doesn't do is scale. And so in virtual care, we were just bringing that system and bringing it online, applying it where every single company was hiring our own provider network and having these very siloed approaches. And so that's one reason it's really hard to just find clinicians. They're not typically just readily available with lots of hours to give each company where they're not working in person. So that's one problem. The second problem, healthcare is highly regulated and for good reason. This isn't just the rideshare industry. This isn't just a drive from one place to the other. It's actually patient lives, each one of us. So the regulations are put in place to help protect patients. And so I'm not saying regulations are a bad thing. I think what it does is make things a lot harder and more cumbersome when thinking about how do I scale up my business. So a clinician needs to be licensed wherever the patient is. And predominantly in virtual care, most clinicians are just providing in-person visits where maybe they're licensed in Texas because that's where their practices are. And then they come on to a virtual care platform and they have a Texas license. And so they can just see patients who are at that moment in Texas. So as you think about how does that scale, you now have to have at least 50 clinicians in every single state every single hour of the day and have to load balance that in real time. So you think about patients are coming in in Georgia, but you overstaffed in New York because that's where patients came in yesterday. And so you can't just easily ship those providers to go pick up those patients in Georgia. Ultimately, you have to just have this big network sitting, waiting around, getting paid for companies that creates an expensive overhead option. If you don't have that network 
for patients, it creates long patient wait times. And so if you don't have the right amount of providers online at the time that the patients are coming in and patients have to wait four or five hours, well, why wouldn't they just go to the urgent care clinic or the CVS minute clinic? Because four hours wait time, they're just disintermediating virtual care altogether. And so it just makes it incredibly important to have this really large network that can be load balanced in real time. A follow-up corollary to this is the surge in virtual care that happened last year that almost brought on this unsustainable demand that the system wasn't ready to handle, creating a lot of opportunity for new virtual care companies. But this year, we're starting to see that volume plateau a little bit as physical visits resume to pre-pandemic levels or close to that. In your mind, do you think that the hype around virtual care is almost too good to be true? No, definitely not. I think what's important to remember is the pandemic really changed what a good outcome for virtual care was. So pre-pandemic, as we thought about telemedicine, a good outcome oftentimes ended in a prescription. What changed in the pandemic was you saw for the first time ever this mass adoption, forced adoption in some cases, because they couldn't go into the doctor's office. Care began online. The care started with maybe they just had symptoms and they were trying to get to the right type of clinician. So care navigation was now a good outcome. Sometimes we could treat that online. That was a great outcome as well. And other times it was just, hey, I want some education about a symptom or I need more information about how I'm feeling or how to insert my CGM, et cetera. So the outcome changed and where patients started their healthcare journeys changed. Pre-pandemic, you would go into the office of the clinician. And then you would tell them all their symptoms and, and maybe you'd get access to a portal. And then that's how you communicated virtually. What changed now is that most care is starting online and then navigating if needed, only if needed. Does it go into the in-person environment, whether that's us sending labs into the home or a provider coming into the home, or you actually need to go into an office for that visit? So I may actually believe that we are seeing a plateau, but only in certain areas. I think if you look at it abroad, sweepingly mental health has continued to climb online. I think it's also important to remember that there is seasonality in healthcare, that we're seeing the market return to normal is actually a positive thing. I don't think we'll ever go back to pre-pandemic utilization rates. The summer months, typically there's not as much cold, flu, preventative care increase, children and adolescent care increasing virtually. Last question around telemedicine landscape is around the elephants in the room, Teladoc or Teladongo and <laughs> Amwell. You had an interesting take recently. The Amwell CEO commented on Amazon's foray into virtual primary care. And he said, I would just say, welcome to the swamp. It's way more complicated than you think. And you critiqued that this reflected a very pessimistic view of moving the healthcare system forward and that the virtual care industry has really failed to rethink its traditional care model. Can you walk through this critique a little bit more? Specifically, why would a provider prefer to work with Wheel versus an Amwell or a Teladoc or similar incumbent? First and foremost, I want to acknowledge that I think what Teladoc and Amwell and the elephants in the room have done for telehealth is a very positive one. I think they were the first people to think about, well, how do we 
increase access to healthcare. You know, the notion of welcome to the swamp does is put up more barriers to say, hey, the way we're doing it today is broken still, and you're not going to be able to compete in the market. And as a firm believer that healthcare needs more players, more innovators in the space to truly change it, that just doesn't sit very well with me because I think there are so much advancement since 20 years ago where Teladoc and Amwell first started. There's players like Wheel that can help you get started. Other connective tissue companies and infrastructure companies can help you bring new innovative ideas to market. So the idea that it's going to be really hard to create this more siloed, we're just bringing the broken system online, trying to replicate a existing in-person visit and just put that online. I, I don't think that's ultimately what we want virtual care to become. I think why would clinicians work for Wheel versus those companies? I think it goes down to that. Clinicians who want to be a part of the next wave of healthcare oftentimes come to Wheel. The second reason has to be, and we, we hear it all the time, is we are a clinician-centered company. We actually do not have a patient front door. So we spend all of our time and resources thinking about the clinical infrastructure and clinician experience inside of healthcare. That itself excites clinicians. Not only does it help clinicians participate in healthcare in a brand new way, but we also support them along their journey. So you can imagine if you're a clinician right now walking into virtual care, you do have so many options to choose from. You can work at three different companies and trying to manage that schedule and that credential across all of them. Or you can work with Wheel, who sets you up with one platform to manage one credentialing, one schedule, and work across many different clients to see different patient populations so you can increase your impact in healthcare while still earning and having the flexibility to support your family and still see your family. There's a lot of different reasons, but ultimately I think it really comes down to those two areas. Can you speak a little bit more about feedback you've heard from clinicians that might have switched from Teladoc and Amwell over to Wheel? I think the thing we hear most often is how refreshing it is that a company actually cares about the clinician voice and the experience in healthcare. So we work very closely with our clinicians when building products for them and even for our clients. We work very closely with our clinician network when formulating new training for how they want to learn and get information about virtual care or different best practices or what we call website manner. Inherently, because of our stakeholders, the end users always are the patients. And so how we focus on removing the barriers for our clinicians to just focus on that patient care, that is where we hear the best feedback and the most feedback around what we're doing and how it's completely different than anything that's been done before. Certainly going back to your earlier point around incumbents being scared and taking virtual care seriously, Amazon has launched their own virtual primary care service, Cigna acquired MD Live, Grand Rounds and Doctor on Demand are emerging, so lots of activity in the space. I think what's most exciting to hear, segueing over to Wheel specifically, is that you're not just providing this commoditized service, you're actually baking in all the complexity that is required of a clinician on top of all the burnout they're facing in their normal clinical day-to-day of staying credentialed and being enabled and empowered to provide really high quality virtual care to patients. 
So I want to shift over to Wheel, provide a couple of stats for our audience. Wheel to date has delivered half a million patient visits, including a 50% spike in Q4 of last year. Your clinician network includes thousands of clinicians with a 90% retention rate. 70% of clinicians also work in regular brick and mortar settings. Many of them are caregivers. Majority of them are the sole income providers for their household. I want to dig into this problem of clinician burnout more. I think we rarely talk about what a provider day in the life is like, especially over the last year. So can you talk about that stress a little bit more and how Wheel is rethinking the solutions for this problem? Absolutely. Yes, it is something we think a lot about and not just because we are clinician centered. We're investing in clinicians because it's really the most direct way to improve the health of our country. 50% of providers staying there burned out, but that impacts the patient as well. You can imagine what it's like on your very worst day of your job, your stress, your probably not feeling great, the communication level to your team is probably pretty poor. And then you realize that that's almost every single day with a clinician because they're so burned out. They have so much work placed upon them and so much of the administration burden placed upon them. And then you make them go interact with patients all day long. And imagine how that affects the patient relationship. I have, I've been into the doctor's office where the doctor's having to click through 16 screens and ask me the same questions that the nurse just asked me just to get through the EMR. And it feels very cold because they really are sitting in front of a computer screen and not facing you. Us here at Wheel just don't think that's the way to increase in patient outcomes. Clinicians actually, let's talk five years ago, had never received any type of training on how to provide patient care online, whether that was in residency or med schools. And we saw some innovative residency programs start placing this into their education over the last three years. And it is different. There are barriers, can't touch a patient, but there's ways to get information from patients. It's really about how do we educate and train them. And then the second part of that is really around being empathetic to the fact that oftentimes they do have another job or another commitment in the in-person environment. And that's important. We don't want to remove all the clinicians. And so how do we build the infrastructure that allows them to have a hybrid work style? I really love this focus on website manner and specifically this last point you made around managing hybrid work styles. Some of the feedback I've heard from clinicians is that the scary thing about telemedicine is that it's hard to ensure quality. You're not able to physically examine the patient. And so actually giving them training on that, how innovative, (laughs) but it actually is, right? So wanted to ask a little bit more around liability and responsibility for quality of care. Wheel connects providers with dozens of different digital health platforms that are the front door that might have their own unique care model in place. The providers might be seeing patients across all of these. How does Wheel ensure consistency across all of these different business partners? And how does it think about liability for these care models? That's a great question. I don't think enough people focus on that, actually. So I talked about it earlier, how as a new clinician entering virtual care, or even an existing clinician who's practiced virtual care, you now have all of these opportunities presented in front of you. There's also war stories on companies who haven't done right by the clinicians or the patients. And it's been the clinicians licenses and livelihood that are affected by that. One of the things that was important to us from the very, very beginning, my co-founder is a health regulatory lawyer. It was important to us to highly vet all of our partners. So each one of our partners goes through a regulatory 
laboratory check and a clinical check. So before we ever even begin working with a partner, we ensure the compliance from a clinical and a regulatory piece. We can help companies who don't have that infrastructure in place because that's built into our infrastructure, stay compliant and over time continue to grow their services while staying compliant in different ways. That is a core part of our business. So that in return protects the clinicians and their licenses and livelihood. And that's our promise to our clinician. But then we go one step further. We provide malpractice for every single patient consult that's performed on our platform or with one of our partners. So we try and catch it up front, but we ensure the back end. And then it goes down to the training, not only for the clinicians, that's important, but we also help companies and clients understand the regulatory changes that are happening. We've built a lot of the complexity of the regulatory environment into our technology so that as they scale, they don't have to worry about that. So we've talked a little bit more about how Wheel distinguishes itself by being really clinician focused. I'd love to talk a little bit more around your different product modalities. So can you walk the listeners through, you know, there are different kinds of telemedicine. There's on-demand synchronous, there's asynchronous, there's text messaging. Are you enabling that for all of your different business partners? And then my second question is, that service might be redundant with what these companies might already be offering to their patients. So do any of these companies feel competitive with wanting to just build these demand supply matching features and interaction features in-house? So I'll start with the first one. I think the question around what is our product suite? How does that get applied? I think it really depends on the care modality. And because we all support so many different types of businesses, we really do have a unique breadth of our product offering. So we have a white labeled virtual care platform that allows companies to practice asynchronous, synchronous, scheduled synchronous, and chat-based telehealth. We are continuing to add to that as new modalities, help different patient populations, et cetera. And then the second question. So from the early days, a lot of people thought, well, I'm going to build this in-house because that's how it's always been done. I think what we've found and we've proven to the market since we've been around since 2018 is there's a different way and a better way to do it. So why wouldn't you partner with a company whose sole focus and purpose is to concentrate on the clinical infrastructure and clinician services and everything that wraps around that so that you can focus fully on the patient and their journey in healthcare? And that ultimately allows our companies that we partner with to deliver a service that is better for their patients, but it actually is more cost affordable. We talked about earlier in the episode that you have to scale these massive networks and ultimately have sitting overhead. Well, Wheel's cost model is that you pay per use. So every single time a patient and a clinician meet, you pay for that time together. You no longer just have this sitting overhead. Reason that we do that is the hope that we don't increase patient costs, but in fact, because we can reduce the overall overhead, the savings get passed along to the patients. Another big expansion for Wheel from the early days compared to now was initially focused on urgent care, but now really focusing on longitudinal care across lots of specialties. So how did Wheel decide to expand into other specialties like behavioral health, lab work? What went into the calculus there? 
So in 2018, when we all started, the predominant use case for telemedicine was more the urgent care, low acuity side of the house. And so that's where we started. We built the infrastructure for that side of the market. What started to happen even pre-pandemic, but definitely accelerated by COVID, was the need for more longitudinal care, more specialty level care, because patients were demanding it. The patients who were utilizing telehealth were not just urgent care visits or their birth control. They also wanted to do more longitudinal kind of primary care. You saw chronic care management coming up for diabetes, et cetera. So the really interesting thing about wheel is where we sit in the market because we are this player behind the scenes we really get to see everything everything from small startups who are coming up all the way to the large enterprises and the incumbents of what are their growth plan and so that's important because it allows us to spot trends of what's going to happen and build the technology and the infrastructure for that why we decided to build a behavioral health i think First and foremost, when we talk about access, we we have to talk about mental health access. And so in the pandemic, we saw a rise of this, but it was always on our roadmap to build a behavioral health uh, network and, and enable those clinicians the same way that we could enable family medicine or internal medicine or other physicians to practice in virtual care, not only to help them practice inside of companies who already had existing behavioral health businesses that they were just scaling out to the masses, but also to help companies who maybe were in urgent care or primary care and wanted to expand their services into mental health access. So an example I'll give is in an urgent care model, patients were coming in maybe because they had a cold or or the flu and marked that they had anxiety or depression. Typically what happened in that environment was that at that time, the clinicians would just refer out and say, hey, you need to go see a specialist for mental health or a therapist and we can't treat you virtually. What we all always wanted to build and is now starting to realize is the ability ability for that to no longer happen to patients. If you mark, maybe you're coming in for your birth control and you mark that you have anxiety or depression, now you can see a clinician online when you want for that. You're not turned away from a service because there is another care need for you. For lads, I think it goes back to the outcome in virtual care. A good outcome used to just be a prescription. Well, now because of the types of care models that we're treating online and the best path may be that a patient needs those labs to be treated virtually the next time or for whatever the condition they're coming on. It may be that they need somebody to go draw those labs into the home. So Wheel is building all of that supporting infrastructure so that we can take care of a patient virtually. I'm a big believer, I keep saying virtually, but I'm a big believer that in the next five years, we'll actually get to drop the virtual and all care will be digitally enabled and we'll just call it healthcare. I love that. And I also appreciate you walking through the nuance of when you launch a new specialty vertical, it's not just a matter of going out and building those provider networks. It's also new training. It's also potentially some product improvements to enable certain services to be delivered. Wanted to end the wheel discussion around a recent milestone that you hit. Congratulations on your 50 million Series B round. Huge, huge news. So what's next on your commercial and product roadmap? And what are some big milestones that you're looking to hit in the next year? 
Thank you. Yes, I appreciate that. It, it is a big milestone for we all and we're really excited. And it's not just for us. It's really for the model that we're bringing. There's a lot to do in healthcare. So we have a lot of ambitious goals around how do we continue to build for the clinician? How do we build the clinical infrastructure for the industry? We are rebuilding a foundation so that these companies can scale on top of and ultimately clinicians can practice in an entirely new way. So we're excited about bringing new types of clinicians online for virtual care for the first time ever. We're also excited to double down on our technology and, and continue to build for new care models and new treatment areas. And, and then last, the last year was a large acceleration for the entire industry. And a lot of people built short-term, how do we help in the moment? What we will be building towards now is the long-term. So certainly a lot of explosive growth coming for Wheel over the next 12 months and more. I want to focus on your personal leadership story amidst that backdrop. You know, you raised your Series A in January of 2020, just before the pandemic started. So you've since had to hire most of your leadership team and broader team remotely. Also, earlier this year, Austin shut down because of the unfortunate and devastating winter storm. As a healthcare company, you had to keep the lights running, but much of your team was left without water, Wi-Fi, and power. So what are some of the heuristics you're using to, one, judge if someone is a good fit, given your experience in talent recruitment and development in a remote world? And then second, once they're hired, how do you build in resiliency and adaptability into the teams that you're building? It has definitely been an interesting year in 2020 as how to build a team and build one that can still run into the really hard problems in healthcare with the same level of excitement and resilience as one that formerly could do that in the same room together. So I think first and foremost, we've had the pleasure of hiring a lot of really great people. We started at our Series A, we were 15 people. So January 2020, about 15 people. We're now well on our way to 100 and doubling that over the next few months. So lots of explosive growth. But I think not only do we focus on bringing great people, but we focus on what we call our value fit interviews. So we have five core values here at Wheel. One piece of of our entire on-site is somebody interviewing against all of those values. Next, it's really around a couple different focuses. One, how we onboard people because it is totally different than it ever was of, of bringing people in and, and educating them on the business and the industry and preparing them with all of these tools and education they need to do their best work. And then how do we support them through that journey? So actually, it's funny because I think while this pandemic has been really difficult for a lot of reasons, one of the things that it did was give us an incredible amount of empathy for our network. We are predicated on remote work with our, our network. And so we've actually pulled from a lot of the onboarding and other areas that we've done with the network and built them into how we onboard and train our internal employees, we've been able to create that same kind of feedback loop from our internal employees into our network, which I'm, I'm really excited about. I love that there's so much customer interaction between the clinicians who are on your platform and your internal employees, because that's, that's what makes the whole experience real, right? So mm -hmm. love to hear it. Michelle, I want to thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed our conversation today. 
I'm so bullish on Will and I can't wait to see where you head over the next year or so. Yes, thank you, Sandy, for having me. It was a great discussion.